I want to be known for like just being a printmaker who just likes to play and experiment and fuse all those things, all those elements together. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 90th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and you can find links to all of this at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where supporters can join at tiers starting at just a dollar a month, and that helps keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like stickers, prints, and mugs, as well as access to our brand new bonus content, Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests from materials, processes, business advice, and general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes to sign up and hear Tim's chat with today's guest. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know those products do not use themselves, which is why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like Sharon Jew, one of our many print friends at Kala Art Institute in Berkeley. From cellular structures to sock monkeys to constellations and beyond, Sharon can be found slinging ink with extender and transparent base to make all the color combos and build up the texture you can dream of. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade to expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel to see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Jennifer Mack, a screen printer and Mokohanga artist based in New Jersey. We'll talk about the ways we encourage children to pursue art, the benefits of fluidity in an arts practice, Japan, representation through the motif of dolls, and how being joyful for your children can get you through some difficult challenges. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get a little nostalgic with Jennifer Mack. Hi Jennifer, how's it going? How you doing Miranda? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, thank you for joining me this evening um, with your matcha tea. <laughs> and I'm really excited to get to know you and your practice a little bit more and just have a great chat. But before we dive into any of those specifics, mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. you please tell our dear listeners a little more about yourself through answering who you are and where you are and what you do? Okay, so I think before, I'm Jennifer Mack Watkins, and I'm a printmaker slash educator artist. Um, and so basically, before I start with where I am, I think where I'm from, I want to start there. And so I'm originally from South Carolina. I went to Morris Brown College, which is the HBCU, which means Historically Black College University. Um, then from there, I went to Boston. I went to Tufts University. Got my MAT, Master's in Arts and Teaching from there. Came back to Atlanta, taught there for a few for a few while. Then I applied to grad school, got into Pratt. Spent two and a half years there at Pratt, taught in 
Brooklyn, taught in Harlem, and then I live in Jersey. Okay. I live in the tour of the East Coast for sure. <laughs> yeah, so back and forth, back and forth, but I, I now currently reside in Hoboken, New Jersey. Wonderful. So you said that you grew up in South Carolina. So what mm-hmm. role did art play in that part of your life? Were you a kid who went to museums? Were you a kid who drew all the time? How did making and visual making find its way into your world as a kid? I think it had, I had no choice. Like, I feel like I come from a, a family of artists. My oldest brother, he's an uh, abstract mixed media painter. And he um, just has a solo show up right now, White Space Gallery in Atlanta. And basically, he was one of the first artists that I, you know, saw to exhibit his work. And, you know, he's an entrepreneur, so he would, like, draw on, like, his draw on people's jeans with paint markers back uh-huh. in the like early nineties. Yeah. He sold it. He, he made art, he made money off of his art. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And I'm um, just watching him. And he also had a barber shop. And so he would cut in designs of people's heads, like in their fade, their, their half tops, you know, in their fades, he would carve, you know, not carve, but he would cut yeah, designs yeah. in their head. So he found every way to like show people that he had skills and, and his art transform in different ways, whether it be on people's, you know, skin from, or from their jeans into artwork. And he would just get into exhibitions through this high school. And so we had a really, really great art background living in South Carolina. Um, my little brother is a, is a shoemaker and he teaches at SCAD. So he designed shoes, went to school. He went to school in Italy after he graduated from SCAD. And now he teaches shoe, shoe design and accessories department at SCAD. And my mom is a hairdresser. And so, like, you know, she is really creative and she still is, you know, she was really, really good with color, good interior spaces, good with putting people's, making people's hair look fabulous and awesome. And she had a salon for like over 30 years. And, um, and so, like, I feel like, and my, and my dad is an electrician, so really good with his hands. We always had to, like, you know, whether, whether we're outside, like, I grew up in, like, the last house that we had before I, you know, graduated. We got a chance to build a house from, like, scratch. Like, my parents planned out, like, you got a blueprint, got a contractor. You know, and they they just built the house from scratch. We decided where's the playroom going to be? Where's my room going to be? You know, the family room. So we get a chance to plan and just see things, you know, happen from like a plan to like an actual product. You know, just being able to see that. And um, we had no choice. Like my mom and dad also were aware of like how media can be too much for children. So like we had limited time when we can watch TV. And so if you can't if you can't watch TV, what you're going to do, you're going to make your own world. Right. So you can imagine. So that way to do that is with paper and pencil and lots of art materials. So I didn't really have too many like private lessons growing up, but I had really great art teachers. And um, my my teachers are able to see, you know, the talent that I had at a young age. I remember getting like awarded, you know, for like like some type of like poster contest. I think I might have designed a few flyers and stuff like that. And um, eventually a few teachers recognized me for gifted and talented programs, which is kind of needs to happen again, you know, currently. So I kind of had like this whole big thing for like recognizing gifted students and like, you know, letting them have extra art um, instruction during the summer or, you know, special programs put in place. Um, They also had like a governor's art school where you had to apply. I never got that far, but I felt like it was all opportunities to help develop as an artist. And so it was just great, you know, just be recognized by my teacher and have access to like professional artists at a young age. I think because the classes were like not overflowing, but they were small class sizes, I had enough one-on-one with some really great art teachers. And so that's kind of like where it kind of expanded from there. Just a touch touch of that. <laughs> kind of rambled about that. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that's all really significant because it sounds like everyone in your immediate family was 
in the business of analyzing something visually and figuring out what's going on and how the different pieces need to fit together and then making it happen mm -hmm. with their hands. I mean, that's what art is. It, it, one of the themes in this podcast all the time is my rantings about the artificial divisions between things mm -hmm. like hairdressing and painting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a different set of skills, but neither is inherently mm -hmm. more or less artistic. You're still doing this thing where you're, you're holding 12 exactly. things in your head at once and you're making it all work together. And then in the end, you step back and you ask yourself, does this look good? <laughs> it's like, it is the same thing. Exactly. It's the same thing. Exactly. Like, you know, just like thinking, like, like you said, putting all these tools, using all these tools together to make like an end product. Like, you know, it's really, really interesting that you said that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and knowing what tools mm -hmm. you have in your toolkit to get what effects and knowing what you're really good at and knowing what's going to be a challenge for you. And just, again, like seeing how Definitely. you're going to make it all work together. And it's, it's so great that you had that kind of encouragement as a kid, because I know that it means so much when we're just little babies finding mm -hmm. our way in the world, you know, to, to be sort of singled out in that positive way by a teacher mm -hmm. and have someone say, like, yeah, hey, definitely. Jennifer, like, I think you might have something special. That means a lot. It, it really does. Definitely, definitely so. <laughs> so did you go for our art in your undergrad then? Yeah. So it was, that's a unique experience within itself. Just like coming from South Carolina. And like, I, I, I say this over and over, like, I feel like back, back when I was in school, like it was only, I didn't have too many like people of color, um, educators. And so, um, I, I had just like, I, it was diverse, but it could have been better. And then also like, as far as like the curriculum was definitely could have been better. I mean, I felt like I learned a lot, but I, and I feel like I had access to getting information. My parents made sure whatever I wanted to know, what I think, I, what they think I should know, they made sure that I knew. I felt like I didn't have access to like knowing a lot about like, or just being recognized like in school, you know, as like, wow, you know, everyone's voices have mattered to American history or like everyone's voices have mattered to literature or math or sciences, you know what I'm saying? And so I felt like that's why I wanted to go to a, a, a HBCU, historically black college university, because I felt like, I needed to know more information. Like I've done all on my own. Like my parents laugh about this, but mom, my mom always thought the library is the safest place <laughs> to go. <laughs> so like growing, like growing up, we live on a dirt road. And so like we could, I could like walk to not many places because we were like live behind developments. So like we live like in an underdeveloped neighborhood that was behind major developments um, in a city where I, where I lived. And so the closest places that we could go to was the community center and the library. And I wasn't really playing too much sports. I didn't play tennis until like junior year. And when I recognized Serena and um, Venus had paved the way for that. And so, but before that, I was just going to the library a lot. And so I felt like I started just like developing a love for research. And I'll come back, touch back on that later. But when I went to, um, to undergrad, I went to Morris Brown College, which was founded in 1881 for um, African-American students. And so basically... I studied BFA and studio arts. And so that was really great because usually art schools, like you get to focus on like, you know, painting, you know, photography, you know, drawing, but my school allowed me to do everything. So the fact that I could do everything and get a, to get a degree in studio arts and have professors from different expertise was amazing. And not only I just took classes at Morris Brown, but like back when I went to school, um, we had cross registration, which allowed you to be able to take classes within a whole AUC, AUC. Um, no, a lot of abbreviations, right? But, yeah. <laughs> um, AUC is Atlanta University Center, which included um, Morris Brown College, Clark Atlanta University, Morehouse, and Spelman. 
And they're all like in the same area in, in this Atlanta area. And um, you can walk to it really within distance, you know. And so basically I got a chance to take classes at Spelman and at Clark Atlanta. And I got a chance to meet other classmates, other peers, other schools that were in the same system as me. So it was just great to have access to like get out of your home school and like go to another school that isn't your home school, but then learning from other professors with different expertise. It was just like, it was, I think every school system in America should have an open campus like that. But um, it was an amazing experience. And I had some really, really great professors to name, like Toby Martin taught me sculpture at Spelman. I took printmaking from Christopher Hickey at Clark Atlanta. I took painting and drawing from Arturo Lindsay. Louis Del Sartre, I took some drawing classes at Morris Brown and Roosevelt Leonard taught me ceramics and art education. Dr. Rensaw taught me um, art education as well. So like, I took a lot of classes everywhere, and um, it was a great experience. So then when did printmaking find its way into your heart, in your practice, in the middle of all of this? Well, I think I got introduced to printmaking in high school, right before, like senior year. Not my senior year, sorry. Probably like my um, my sophomore year, the summer. It was a gifted and talented program that I was selected for to participate like a week long. They had this printmaker to come in to the, to the class, and he taught us monotype. And I was like, it's my first time ever being exposed to printmaking. Even when I had, you know, a few classes in art, um, I never had printmaking. And I had it for the first time in the summer. So I learned how to, like, make a monoprint, you know, in, like, my sophomore year. And I did a print of, like, a paint tube and a paintbrush. I said, I know how to do that. I know what it looks <laughs> like. So I'm going to draw that on this plexiglass. Yeah, it's already a meta, yeah. <laughs> right, I have to do that. And so then I did that, and then um, I ended up later on getting awarded for that in the county for that, and ended up being in a, like, have your work in the mall. Like, that was oh, like yeah, so I had yeah, <laughs> that was a thing. <laughs> I had it in the mall. I got a ribbon, you know, saying that I got, you know, some type of, like, I might have got, like, a little small little check or something like that. But it was just really big to be recognized on a county level for that. And I was like, wow, this is something special. So then, um, so then I ended up taking printmaking, I believe, like my sophomore year, and I took every class that they that Clark Atlanta offered, and it was like printmaking one, printmaking two, then I'm taking like independent studies one and two. So I ended up taking printmaking up until that point until I graduated at some t- type of way, and um, and I think even then I just you know I was just did like etching and like relief printmaking back then. I didn't get into silk screening. Until like until like graduate school when I went to uh when I went to Tufts and um I think that it kind of has been around lingering in my mind since like high school so it's it's been really a big journey that's for sure yeah and it's like the way kids form the way that they see themselves so if printmaking is what got you that recognition at that county level and got to show your work in the mall which I just love because I remember that so well and how exciting it was to get that sort of recognition. If printmaking is what got you there with that monotype, it's so natural that you then would be really drawn to that form. Yeah, definitely so. Definitely, the process was like just really engaging within itself. Like you can make more than one and you can like manipulate it by doing this with this tool, like knowing how to use a tool. So I think the process was really, really exciting. And I think if I hadn't had printmaking in high school, I mean, being, I think I still, it was still in our curriculum to take it, but I would have probably wondered more about it prior to that, but I knew what printmaking was like in high school. So I was really excited when I got opportunity to take the course at Clark. And as you mentioned before, you were doing woodblock and then you came to silkscreen. 
And the kind of woodblock that you do is mokuhanga, which if there are any listeners who don't really know exactly what that is, it's a Japanese form of woodblock. And it's known for being really painterly and soft and gentle. It's using these water-based inks. And so you can layer them and it just has this really, can be almost sort of dreamy sort of effect. But then on the other side of the printmaking family tree, you have silkscreen. And silkscreen is known for these hard edges, these graphic shapes, these bold colors. So how did you come to incorporate both of those into your practice and into your practice in a way where they're foundational elements? Wow. Okay. That's a great question. Um, I think it would probably have to like, okay, so I guess when I had a chance to like, you know, go to grad school, you never had to have like an end product. Like you got a chance to like really, you know, focus on like your own expertise and your, in your interest and develop your own style. So I think from there, like once I understood how still screening worked, how lithography worked, how etching worked, like how I understood how all these different printmaking um, techniques work differently, but then they all connect, you know, in some type of way. And that's the layering of images, right? Layering of images to make a, a final product, right? And so I felt like once I understood all that, I always like to like play around with like, you know, taking elements of like my understanding of, for my example, for my recent um, series of work, like there's a strong black black outline that that goes around each stall and like that's my understanding of like okay this translate in Japanese woodblock this is a this would be a key block right so I understand how important line and detail is in in the woodblock that I do the techniques I do and then I understand how flat color works right and understand how silk screen works because there's textures involved there's like so many things you can do so I feel like eventually I'm going to make prints that are always having some type of mixture of like tech break making techniques. I feel like I don't want to be, I'm only known for silk screen. I'm only known for Japanese woodblock, but like I want to be known for like just being a printmaker who just likes to play and experiment, infuse all those things, all the elements together, you know? And um, I don't want to have to be like, you have to only do this kind. Are you see, you're seen as this, but like, no, I want to be a printmaker and that's what I am. And that's what I want to be and have the fluidity of like going between different mediums. But I feel like it's really fun, you know, when you do find that, you know, I find my style. I find out like, okay, this works for this. This works for that. Let's put it together. Let's see what I get. You know, you try it out. And I, I didn't even know how it would even, you know, be received. I didn't know it would be received on this level. But when I did, I was like, wow, this, this is it. You know, like I always knew, like, I had stuff. I always thought they had to be like, you know, separate. But over the years, I've, I've found ways to fuse in those techniques together in some type of a way. Yeah, and I think what you're saying about finding the different strengths in the different media and how they all support your image making in their own individual best ways, it's something that really shows that like advanced printmaker where you have all of these calculations going on in your head and it's just going like boop, 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 boop. And it's like, I can get an aqua tint from over here and I can get a touche from over here and I'm going to have them all support what is the end goal, which is to make a strong image, which has what you want to say out in the world. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of what you want to say out in the world, let's talk a little bit about the content of your work, because your work, it, it, it's, it's dealing with ideas about beauty and relationships and body image and gender roles and power dynamics, and these are all huge topics, which is, of course, are interrelated and intersectional. But what brought you to take on these really big themes that play this huge role in shaping our lives? I think by attending, like, just having access to, like, 
going to school in Brooklyn at Pratt and then being able to go to like so many lectures, like before COVID times, um, so many lectures and like meeting so many artists and going to so many shows and like making connections and just like seeing, okay, like I like this work, but why? Okay. This artist said this and why, like what's the continuous theme? I remember seeing, I remember being able to hear Carrie Mae Weems speak. Oh my goodness. Um, in Newark, I expressed Newark a couple years ago. And that I remember just I remember just taking so many notes that my paper was like full, right? And it's like and it's like not only just of course Carrie Mae Weems, like that was her work over time, no matter what, it deals with the same constant theme. And I always look at artists like her or like Candy Wiley or like just like Elizabeth Catlett, Charles White, you know, like Ramirez Bearden. Like I look at like what makes longevity of an artist and it's just it's constantly taking from everyday life that that how they relate to something and how they express it. And how the themes, no matter if it changes, the form might change, but it's still the same constant theme. So just analyzing and, and studying artists and seeing, okay, this is what makes a catlet. This is what makes a white. This is what makes a beard. And, you know, understanding more of that and not just like, okay, it might be a different series, but no matter what, it still deals with its themes. I remember even when I first made my statement out of grad school, because my work in grad school was was not figurative. It didn't really deal much with anything, not too much not too much of not like female or gender, none of those things. It was more of like, at that time, I was having a hard time trying to figure out like, okay, I'm trying to develop my style. I'm, I'm trying to have a voice and express why I'm here and what I'm trying to do with my art. And so a lot of times I'd go to critiques and people wouldn't understand like why I was, you know, trying to make work about Harlem. Right? And then like, like who was a rare beard? And like, I would talk about artists who I really, really liked and no one had any idea or like no one understood the, aesthetic that I was coming from and the history um, that exists in my own mind and just artists who I thought were like my celebrity artists, no one understood the aesthetics of where I was coming from. And so from there, as you know, I'm tired of like trying to explain like, you know, why I put this African-American figure here in the center of this classroom. And then there's like a broken window to express the inequalities of education. So I was being too deep. It was too deep. And, and, I, and for me, I felt like um, grad school is more about more about developing your concept, and at least for, from my aspect, it's more about developing your, your concept that can that can like be translated into a technical. It's more about technical, you know. Like I would just see, you know, other classmates do something and it'd be technical, but then the concept was like okay, you know. But I knew I wanted to to do more than be okay, and so um, I decided to like take my like interest in like history and layering and images and people, but I translate it conceptually to abstract conceptual form where I just use buildings, buildings and maps. And I layered that as thinking of history. And so my whole thesis show was like a whole room and I got a chance to do a community art project with some students in Weeksville. And um, Weeksville is basically like an African-American like town that was like happened. I don't know the exact dates, but like it was like, it was African-American town where doctors and teachers lived in this area of Brooklyn and it was a thriving area and so I got a chance to, to relate that history to Brooklyn and use some students to make a, a printmaking project where they had a chance to research the history of where they live and make prints and you know current day and all that kind of stuff and they got a chance to come to the gallery so within that space I had I made maps um, where I like tore my prints up after I printed all these layers and I tore them up to make like an inter interconnected like map and I just layered them like started thinking about like, okay, how are, how are cities divided and what divides cities? And so I decided, okay, well, people are divided, so let's make a map. So I made maps and, um, and like abstracted, like conceptual 
pictures of like where I tore, I tore everything. Nothing was really not really square, but it was just fun to play around and just see print take a different form and be okay with like, okay, look, I made this print fit within this matrix, but I'm going to play a little bit. I'm going to tear it up and make a whole nother work from it. And so that was really, um, like this really, it felt really great to be able to feel confident to do that. And, um, so I graduated and after that, I was like, you know, I want to make work that's about me because I feel like now I could like, I don't have to worry about what the, how the critique's going to go, who, who understands. Like I said, no, this has always been about me. I always did figure it before I went to Pratt. And, um, so I, I just wanted to work on a grander level. So therefore I, I think one of the first pieces I did after grad school was no pattern necessary. And, um, and so I made those prints and I was like working out of Louisa print shop where I was renting. And so I developed work, making those works there. And, and back then I had planned to do a whole series. Like I was like a homage to my mom. So like I said, I said, what can I make work that's about myself that I can just make a statement with and say, everybody likes hair. So I did, I did the, I did the two series of the, um, of the hair and I also did, um, Black Warhol. And so I was just like, looks like a, like, it's like my version of, of Andy Warhol print. So I did all those in the same time span. So, okay, this is, okay, this is about beauty. And then, then from there, I said, let me play around and like, let me take a class from April Vollmer. Awesome individual. If you don't know her, look her up or get her on this podcast. But she ended up writing a whole book on um, Japanese woodblock. And she taught me when I was there, I got a chance to take classes. I took her class six times. I would take that class when I was working a full day after teaching. I go on Thursday nights from six to nine for six weeks each, six times each class. So her class, I took a lot to understand how to, how to use my relief technique into Japanese woodblock. And then from there, she's like, okay, you should, she told the class, like, y'all should go to Japan. There's a conference happening. And we're like, it's not like going to Japan. Like, what are you talking about? Like, like it's like, we're just taking this class. Like, no one's ever going. So I was like, you know what? Why can't I go? Like, she, she was on the board. She was presenting there. And I was like, I want to go too. So then I... I applied um, to present papers, and so this was an awesome experience. Like it's like a scholarly way of sharing about art, and so like I got a chance to present in Tokyo in 2014, and I got a chance to present my paper because you present paper presentations, and so you would present you know slides, and you have your paper you wrote, and you submit it, you get in, and you share, and people come to listen to it, come listen to you in like college classrooms, and so it took place in Tokyo Gedai. And so basically um, from there, I got a chance to meet other international artists. I was like, wow, this is bigger. Like, this is bigger than Laurie Side Print Shop class. Like, this is international. So I got a chance to meet artists from all over the world. I still have connections to many of them. And so, like, that was awesome. And then um, another year, I ended up going back and I did a, um, the residency um, at, from, at Me Lab. And so basically that took place in um, Yamanashi Prefecture. And um, it was a month long. I got a chance to, to work with two awesome Japanese printmaking teachers there and I got a chance to meet some other artists from all over the world. It was only six people that we chosen. So I was chosen from the USA. And um I got a chance to meet people from um from Hong Kong and Australia, Italy, UK and Canada. All of us shared this one was one house and shared the bathroom, oh, shared, wow. shared shared the washing machine, shared the kitchen. Like you became family with yeah. you know for like a month. And like it was awesome because we like, you know, we cry together, we miss our family, if we miss a special moment or like you know, if we weren't feeling well, like we were there for one another, we cooked one another, ate with one another, tasted each other's food from around the world. So that was really fun. And then on the weekends when we weren't working, that was founded by Keiko Kadoda. She passed away, but she started the program. And um, and so we got a chance to like, you know, spend time with her and like she showed us around. And I remember walking to the store, like it was an experience. Like we walked to the store about 30, 40 minutes each way with our groceries. 
So you have to probably go a couple times a week to get what you needed for the week because we, we didn't have a car. And no, there was no taxis. It's like you walking through these, like, you know, fields of, like, people growing food and blueberries. And Is Yamanashi pretty rural then? Is, is that what it sounds like? Yeah, it's very rural. Like, it's basically the, um, the same region where you could find the um, Mount Fuji. The oh, Mount Fuji. Okay. You can see that in the background. You can see oh, that. If it's beautiful. Not, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful area and just, like, very rural. Very real, but we we could take we can walk to the train station to take the bus. It would take an hour and forty five minutes to get to Tokyo, so it was way out. Like it wasn't close to basically anything. And I remember just like getting off the bus for the first time, like you know, and being in that prefecture area. I was like, wow, this is the middle of nowhere. Like, where are we? But I grew to love it. I grew to like enjoy nature because I never really had to walk to the grocery store like that or like walk through fields. So it was a different experience. And then to answer your story, long story short. Um, so just taking a lot of classes um, outside after I graduated really helped me to understand, you know, more about Japanese woodblock. And um, then with, I, even with Soul Screen, when I first started, I ended up taking some um, outside of outside of undergrad, took classes at like the Atlantic College of Art before that school got shut down. But I took classes there for the first time and at Tufts. So I always, always take classes. Even I was in grad school at, at Tufts. I took a figure drawing class and, it, you know, wasn't for a credit, but I just always thought it was important to continue to educate and continue to learn. And so I feel like that's like the, that's like what printmaking is about. That's what being an artist is about. And I feel like no matter how much you know or learn, if you got your style, I think it's just important to just have interaction to learn from others and learn with each other something new or something that you can develop more. Yes. Can you walk us through a bit about the series that you're working on now, which you mentioned in passing, which is about the dolls? And maybe start with just talking about the imagery and some of the themes that you're working with. Okay. So some of the themes that definitely come up would be uh, based on, like, Black representation of children, imagination, play, future, current, you know, just thinking more about, like, you know, how African-Americans have been portrayed and how we have been treated historically, currently. So I just wanted to take all those different ideas and put them in a way that could make you think about the past, but also think about the present and how joyful, you know, a doll or play or being a child can be, you know, especially during, um, during these type of times. Right. So I feel like the work developed over time. So I always, you know, do like, you know, figured of, of women and I started to throw in children into subjects in my work just recently. Um, but definitely I wanted to do that be that like the main focus of this of this show because it happened to a time like I had my son in 2019 and I was December end of the year and then coronavirus hit like in March right and so all this was happening with the protests uh you know Black Lives Matter everything was happening all at once I was like wow I gotta find a way to make sure that no matter what I make sure I, my children are joyful and I and I even you know and let them know like this is what's happening but it's important for us to continue to make sure it be are having fun too, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? So like, I feel like, I remember like, you know, when it first started, I remember just like feeling hopeless and helpless. And I remember one time I was like in tears. I was like, I just felt so horrible that the fact that, you know, our children had to grow up in something like this. And I, and my, my daughter's like, what's going on, mommy? I was like, you know, I'm fine. Mommy's a little sad, but a lot of stuff is happening, but you know, I'm fine. And, you know, she gave me a hug, you know, it's just like, that moment when it first started, I was like, wow, I got to find a way to like be joyful. So I said, let me think what makes me joyful. Seeing my son and daughter play, seeing her imagine with these dolls and stuffies, stuffed animals, and like just seeing how it makes her feel. 
And so I felt like I need to do the same thing. So I felt like I wanted to use the doll as a representation of, of play. And then also like just to make sure that everyone know how important it is for to have black positive representation of children. But I think it kind of started off as well. Like when I first did this show, maybe two years ago, I remember I was pregnant with my son and I did this show by Katie Fuller. She's a curator and um, she did, she has this like branch race and revolution. And so basically she had this show about like using artists to tell history of New York. So I chose a New York orphanage that was in New York city. So I did a, I did some, some sort of screens on that. And that was interesting. It was like one of these, um, one of the orphanages were burnt down during race riots and the children were, the children were like, you know, of course forced out and they survived, but they didn't have a place to go after that. So I feel like I read all the accounts from like the New York times. I read articles. I read firsthand accounts. I saw etchings that were drawn of, of documenting this event. And I was like, wow. So I saw, and even during that time, I started going to like different university libraries in the um, New York area. I was looking for like more orphanages and like, okay, what happened to these children that didn't have places to go, you know, during this time? And like, where are the positive rep- representation of, of black children? So it was really hard to find black children, you know, even when I did the show back then. But then when I got opportunity to do the show on Vermont, I wanted to like find a way to like look for like history in Vermont that dealt with African Americans. And then I ran across Daisy Turner. And then from there I started researching her and I got a lot of information from Vermont Folklife Art Center. And I read the book by Jane C. Beck about Daisy Turner. And I ended up getting audio from this same center of her actually speaking. And I, I was like, wow. I was like really moved. I was like, wow, this like to have the voice of someone so great made me think like, okay, what other voices that would be great to like just hear? Yeah. And who was she? She was like a local legend in the, in the um, Grafton, um, Vermont area. And so she was a storyteller. And so she was basically able to live until almost 104 years old. And um, so basically Jane C. Beck, who wrote the book about her, was able to document her whole history of her, of her family from before they came to Vermont and then when they were in Vermont and then the current day. So she was able to document all that through book and through audio. So her whole story is, is is documented, and there's a few videos out there as well. But I got a chance to like, you know, know more about how it was for her to be so resilient living in Vermont, a place where many African Americans didn't live. You know, what I'm saying, and how it was for her, and how some of these same recurring themes that we go through today recurred way back when she was living. You know, what I'm saying, so it's just inter- interesting. In her childhood, same thing. You know, like she had, you know, I I fell across the audio. First, and then I found, you know, then I saw the book where it was like documented. But the audio was like so moving just to hear her talk about this doll, this doll poem, and it was like a Dinah, a Dinah doll. I started looking at like history of like dolls and how representation of dolls have changed over time, from like you know a mammy-looking doll to like you know like now you know then then later in the '80s the Barbies started to get more diverse. You know what I'm saying? So like I just I got like two books on like black black dolls. And was this a poem that Daisy had written herself? Yeah, it was a poem, a poem that she wrote herself when she was a child, and she ended up reciting it. She was able to re- she was able to recite all her history by audio, like she can remember it like as if it was yesterday. And now, and and it was just amazing that that was able to be captured before before she passed away. And um, so basically, the doll is a doll poem that originally that the teacher had gave to everybody to represent every country. And so she was supposed to represent Africa, but 
she thought that the doll poem that she was that she was given didn't really represent who she was or how she wanted um, her community to be portrayed. So then she made up her own poem. Her dad her dad told her just to go along with it. You know, it's all different types of people. You know, on the world, just you know, do what the teacher says. And she's like, nope, do my own thing. So she did her own poem and. You can, you can see the audio. If you research, you, you'll find the audio. But, like, basically, she's, like, saying you're not, you're just as good as any other doll. No matter what color of your skin, you're just as good as the others. And so um, she wrote a whole poem, and it was an oracle poem. So it was not, not it's like a, a cutesy poem. It was an oracle, like, as a speech poem, you know, like a competition, like, for her school. And so she ended up winning that, um, that speech. And I thought that was very, very, very courageous of her and really showed resilience. And so I, I decided to, like, do... A show based on dolls and giving like the dolls like as if they're like you know a doll that Daisy might have had and maybe represents her sisters. I think she had like 10 or 11, 10 or 11 siblings and so I wanted to represent each one but also represent <laughs> also also represent like historical like contributors of African-Americans who have contributed to our history and people like to always say like African-American history yes but also it's American history so I, I chose names that represent their contributions to our history. Yeah, for sure. Because that's, I mean, for kids at that age, that's when they're forming their sense of self in the world. They're asking themselves, how do I fit in and who am I? And I think that there's that really classic image of a little girl of color standing in front of a wall of dolls and all of the dolls have blonde hair and blue eyes. And I'm sure the child's going to ask itself, like, why don't I see myself here? Like, where am I? Why am I not represented? And as you said, in the 80s, we were seeing a bit more of diverse representation in toys. But when you look back, not only at dolls, but even at just the media that's produced from that time, the the blonde-haired, blue-eyed character is still centered. And then it's like, oh, we have Barbie's friend, right? So it's it's never being centered. It's never being the protagonist. And there's no way that seeing that narrative over and over again can't affect little kids. There's no way they can't notice that. And, and no matter what the toy is, you know, whether it's, it's Barbie or, or G.I. Joe or, or whatever. Definitely. Definitely. I like that you mentioned the 80s because I remember, like, you know, you have to go, like, they always find a way to, like, you know, separate, like, you have to look way in the back to get the, get the Barbie that you wanted. Or you look to the side, you have to go to a special aisle or you go the segregated, okay, here's these Barbies and here are the other Barbies. And then they're always the same, the same name, Christy, Christy. <laughs> and like <laughs> every, 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 every brown Barbie was like Christy. And like, you know, if there's like, a, you know, like a, any other ones that have like just generic, just the same name, but like then other Barbies had like all these different names and like different careers. And if you wanted the different, like they, they were those that existed, but it weren't many. So if the store ordered it, if there was a black teacher, then that one was probably taken because someone else needed it, right? So it was always like a, a small demand, you know, a, a big demand, but it wasn't a lot, not a, a small supply, right? Yeah. So it was hard to, to get it, you know? But now it's crazy. Like now there's like Casper Johnson doll, there's a Frida color. Like there's like all different shapes and sizes dolls now. So like, it's just like, we have really advanced, but just growing up, that was not, it was not the case. All of them looked the same size, same color, same name. And like you said, like it wasn't like, even in the commercials, it was, you didn't yeah. see diverse Barbies, but now you see that now. Like, you know, so like, yeah, we definitely have come a long way and um, definitely needs to make sure that, you know, even with how dolls have changed over time, like how these dolls are meant to make it seem as if 
you know, you are the other, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it's just like, it's just very crazy how media and how things have just changed. I remember seeing like drawings of like babies and like alligators eating the African-American babies. Like, what is this? Like people actually Judy's back then. Like it's, it's horrible. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. So we definitely have come a long way and we still have more to do. We still need more black designers who design these dolls and toys because as in order for us to diversify the, the, the toys and the, in the play, we have to continue to make these type of products. Yeah, and, and what you're saying about having black designers being the people who are designing these is so important because, of course, there's this long history of white people saying, well, let me tell you what your story is. You know, like, I'm, I'm the one writing the narrative, and so let me, let, let me tell you about you. And, of course, it's a completely different thing when someone else says, no, I've lived it, this is my story, this is actually how it goes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I think, I guess I was a doll head at a young age. I had every type of doll there was to, from Jim. Um, oh, yeah. Like, Jim. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. And her ro- in her roaster car? Oh, wow. And I had the Barbie <laughs> Jean house. I had all types of Barbies and um, definitely was a doll head from a young age. <laughs> oh, do you still <laughs> collect dolls? Are they still a part of your practice and your research, the actual uh Collecting of the physical objects? No, my daughter. My daughter collects too okay. many of them. They're all over the place. <laughs> okay, gotcha. She has, gotcha. She, ha- she has more stuffies, but actually, when, since this work, I I am going to start a small collection of vintage dolls that I'm um out there looking for now. So like, just a few more to make art from. But not. I'm not going to get too crazy and have a whole bunch of like dolls like you know just sitting around because they can be kind of like scary looking if they're, if they're pretty big um <laughs> yeah yeah especially vintage dolls vintage dolls <laughs> yeah like their eyes <laughs> and they definitely will be in a box it won't be sitting out looking at me but it yeah. only will be yeah. i only will bring it out for studies <laughs> that's about it maybe a few of them but i got one on the way coming from the uk so i'm excited to get that soon mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if we could back up a little bit chronologically here in the history of your practice. I would really like to talk about this series that you have that's these really beautiful Mokohonga prints of housewives. And they also have a vintage feel to them. These ones look really 1950s. They're doing things like unloading a dishwasher in heels, which just sounds absolutely terrible to me. Could you speak to that series a bit and the explorations that you have of women in spaces and how and where and under what circumstances they're allowed to take up space, but maybe also more broadly uh, the using a vintage aesthetic throughout your work, which seems to be a theme. I think what sparked the Housewives series would be looking through, I collect all the magazines and books. I collect all the things that take up space, but um, I have tons of like old like life magazines and going through those, I, I was able to find a few like Sepia magazines, a few like other African-American magazines for reference. But I remember looking at Life magazine and I'm like, okay, so that you mean that in the 60s and, and prior, no one else advertised household domesticated spaces. So if you look through all those ads, it looks the same, correct? So I was like, what would it look like if if an African-American female was advertising these ads. And so it started off with looking at ads and what didn't exist. And so I wanted to make imagery, okay, this didn't exist, but in my mind, it did exist, but it, it just didn't exist in life, right? <laughs> in life in general, in life in period, right? In the 60s, right? And if you did find the ads, they're only going to be found like in, in black magazines. You would really, 
you wouldn't find it in life. Like I got tons and crates and the ones I have, I didn't see any of them. So I said, I want to make my own image to make it seem like, okay, we are here, but we're not going to be seen as like, okay, as other or just seen as help. You know, like when people think, well, it's funny how people interpret it. Like, oh, I like the woman in the kitchen. But I said, if you really knew why I put her there, then, you know, hopefully you would still support it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But like, I never, never intended for her to feel like she's help because I felt like my mom was like the center of the house. Is, the kitchen is the center of the home. My mom is the center of the home because of the cooking. She's an awesome cook. And so I felt like this is her space. Um, and this is a space that she's in charge of. And she does it how, and she cooks how she wants to, to be. And she gets to look the way she wants to look. You know what I'm saying? And so for there, I wanted every person that I put, whether it be a vanity, putting makeup on, whether it be in the kitchen, she, the, the that African-American female is in that space is her space, right? And she belongs, and she belongs there. And so that's kind of why I kind of, you know, dip in and out of that era because I felt like it was missing. I'm like, wow, how can it be so many ads? I'm like, no one else existed. I'm like, this is crazy. So I said, no, this is this is where I'm going to come in and, and tell my story and how I want to be seen in, in, in this space. And so I remember doing this show in Queens. It was like, it was a really humongous show. I can't remember the name. It was like a, it was a feminist show, Knockdown Center in Queens. And so I did that show and it selling it in an auction and the money went to charity for something around time of when, you know, people were voting for. Yeah. But anyway, um, so so like basically, but basically I did that show. I put the lady within the White House <laughs> in, the, on the, in, the, in the Oval Office and she had the sexy skirt on and she had her finger in her mouth. And so I had her like being sexy. <laughs> I know I didn't do too many of those, but I did. It was a it was a mixed media like like a with like watercolor and pen, but someone bought it. But it was fun, and she had heels on, but she was in a different type of space. And so I just wanted, like, you know, how can the space be transformed by the imagery that is embedded in our, what, our, what I, can, I can embed it in people's minds that this, that this person exists and, and the space is there because I can just rep, can continue repeating that over and over in my work. Like, I'm going to make a brown person here, here, and here, and here, <laughs> because this, is, this, this was, like, we, we always had ads. We always traveled. We always had kitchens. But now you're gonna see that okay, this is what was that wasn't um, being recognized. It's not recognizing now, you know. And I also wanted to also pay homage. Like okay, I like Japanese printmaking. I like Japanese prints and aesthetics of just the art in general. And I wanted to add okay, my homage. Like okay, I'm doing this tech technique that took, that originated in Japan, but it had references to China and every everywhere else, right? But I wanted to like fuse the two of my own culture and my own everyday life, similar to Yoi. And put that with my own everyday life experience, infusing my African American culture with the aesthetics of, Afri- of Japanese prints. So that's kind of where I wanted to come into part because I hadn't seen too many Japanese prints. You could find like you know the European influence and the French influence of Japanese prints and painters and from Gauguin and into everyone else, but you very really rarely see you know African Americans who are doing you know figurative work you know, with like Japanese printmaking. So I wanted to do that too. Yes. And there is something so powerful about making the images that you want to Mm -hmm. see in the world. You know, saying I haven't seen a brown woman in the Oval Office, in the White House. So I'm going to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And and then then it happened, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm 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 trying to tell the future to people, like just get on board. You know, like just get on board. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I could think of all kinds of things I'd like to commission from you, just so you exactly. can make them come through through the wood blog. Exactly. <laughs> now, you currently have an exhibition on right now that's The Children of the Sun, and this is this exploration um, of this historical representations, you know, sort of through toys. Is this a theme that you think you want to stay with for a while and continue to see what comes of it? Or is there anything else on the horizon that you want to talk about that you're excited about exploring? Yeah, yeah. And so like, that, like, okay, so once I decided like about Daisy and as that subject of like interest before I started the piece, I wanted to also look and see how I could find black positive representation of children. So I, I ran across the, um, the, Brownies, the Brownies book, which is a monthly magazine that ran for a year. And it was started um, by W. Du Bois. And it had some really, um, I think Langston Hughes had a couple poems in there. They had some illustrators. Um, and they also had like play instructions, like how to play or like poetry, um, stories that are written by, um, about like what was happening every day and like how to get through it. And like, it's more like a motivational magazine and parents would send in photographs of their children dressed in white usually. And everything was of course black and white. So it was just this big magazine that was put out. And so I discovered that by research. And then I decided like, okay, what would, the, what would my dolls look like if they were in a book? So I knew up from, a, I knew from the beginning, I wanted to have like a literary feel. And I knew I wanted to, to be like the, the children are dressed up because the children were dressed up in that original, in original magazine. And I decided to take different like ideas of like, of, of clothing that was like, around the era of when Daisy was, was around specifically. So I took a whole nother era before the sixties. These, these things probably existed probably like in 1800 or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just, I was like, wow, how clothes have really changed. So basically when I first discovered this, um, this magazine, it was like, I remember seeing a photograph of the, it said the, the Negro silent protest parade, but as before I even read the title, but I just remember seeing this photograph of like children all dressed in white marching down the street in New York City. And I was like, okay, this, this is beautiful. But then as I read it, I was like, ooh, this is horrible. Because I basically, about uh, all the African-Americans came together and about 10,000 or so came together. And they started, they were like marching, marching like throughout New York City as a protest to like what was happening with race rights and like in the, um, like just the treatment of black people and the mourning of people who have lost their lives. And so basically it was a protest where children, children, young children were dressed up you think for a joyous occasion, but it was to protest, dressed up. And I was like, wow, that took courage. That took like, okay, yes, I'm a child, but they had to like go through this, this not go through this parade, knowing that they are making a change by being heard and seeing being seen as children. I was like, wow, that's a big, that's a big like weight to have to do, you know? And so I felt like I, I was like, I wanted to do something with children being dressed up and adults came into play, you know, Black pods of representation. So this, that's kind of where the um the whole theme came from. And then um I also have two two color lithographs, uh, Black Boy Hope one and two. And um basically, it's more of like, okay, yes, the future can be anything you want it to be. No, don't take anyone's idea of like what you what they think you should be. Forget stereotypes is there, but you don't have to be that stereotype. You know, you can you can you determine your future, right? And so I decided to, to name this Black Boy Hope, but also it references like how the Black body has been, you know, war- warranted, violated, attacked, targeted, protested, kidnapped, and like in mocked in media. And so I wanted to like think about like, you know, also like historically, it also brings reference to like 
all those things, like specifically George um, Stinney, he was the first African-American 14-year-old boy that was falsely, one of the, one of them falsely a, a, accused of murder. Um, and it wasn't until 2014 um, when his conviction was overturned. And it took 70 years, you know, historically for his name to be, uh, you know, exonerated. And so, like, basically... I was like, wow, he had no future. Like, that future was taken away from me because he was wrong, wrongfully accused. And that was, like, definitely just horrible. And so I felt like I wanted to take, like, all these horrible instances and horrible traumatic that still happens in, in the community today. And um, I wanted to call it Black Boy Hope because I want every child to feel hopeful. I want every child to know that they can get through the hard struggles and traumaticness of, that happens in life and still have a successful future. I'm really taken with how much goes into your practice in terms of research. These stories that you're telling about what happens before the finished image is just such a good lesson for any students or any beginning artists or beginning printmakers out there. Because it's like, yes, like you have this really powerful image as the end product, but you didn't just wake up one morning and have it there fully formed in your head. You went into archives, you did the research, you found historical figures or historical events that were interesting to you, and you followed it through, which is really significant to hear. You know, I think when, when you're hearing particularly from an artist who's established like yourself, who's got degrees, who's getting shows, but to hear that even when you're at that point in your career, you still have to do the work to come up with these images that on the other side, they're out in the world and they're functioning and they're doing what you want them to do. Exactly. And I think that also answer your question too. I do know that I would like to use, continues to use dolls and maybe it might be other toys too. Like, I feel like I, I'm interested in like, okay, what those vintage trucks, you know, or look like, you know, not trucks, but it have to do something with African-American figure. But I would like to know how dolls have transformed over time. But specifically, I definitely would like to do more work um, with the dolls for sure. Yeah, well, I am very much looking forward to seeing that and following that. Yeah. So we're just now coming up on the hour recording mark here. So I want to make sure that we have time for you to talk about anything else that's on the horizon that we may have missed that you want to let people know that they should keep an eye out for and then also where can people find you where can they follow your work and see all the great jennifer mack news that's coming out next couple of months i'm um i'm going to be participating in a few of the uh, other events so like you know that goes with the show so you can be on a lookout to brattleboro museum and i might even do some independently as well but it's going to be centered around the theme in my in my show and that's to be really interesting because on one of the events, I'm going to have the curator, David Rios Vieras, and Fayemi Shakur, who is a poem, the poet. And she wrote a current, she wrote a, I forgot to mention that. So basically in the show, you'll hear Daisy Turner's audio when you first walk in. And then you'll see a photograph of her dressed up in a hat. And then you go around the corner and then you can hear Fayemi Shakur's modern day interpretation of the Dolly poem. And it, you can hear her and you can read it and then you'll see the rest of the prints lined throughout the um, throughout the exhibition. And um, I think it's important for people to like take time. There is a virtual virtual gallery available for people who can't get to Vermont. Um, but I know May 15th, they're gonna have a spring festival and I plan on going there for, for that event um, where I get a chance to see the show for the first time and meet the director. 
um, Danny, and um, it's going to be really, really great. And so I feel like, um, hopefully people can continue to, you know, be on the lookout on my Instagram. I'll post, you know, occasionally some some information, but I think to stay abreast with the Brattleboro Museum's, um, you know, website. And I, you can find me at, you know, Instagram, Mac underscore Jennifer Prince. And on my bio, there's a link to my Linktree page. It has tons of articles and interviews and podcasts and um, websites that I've been making sure I, I keep updated. So definitely, you know, check social media and check my website. Um, it's my name backwards, MacJennifer.com. Um, and so you'll be able to find it as well. All right. Well, I will definitely put links to all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much for letting me borrow an evening of your Saturday night to come and chat with me. And it's been wonderful to learn more about you and your practice and everything. And I really look forward to seeing more about the exhibition and all the events that you talked about. Thank thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I feel like I could talk to you about print all the time so if you ever want to just go on skype hey let's talk like yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely this hour went by really quick well that's our show for this week join me again next week when my guest will be mark atwood we'll talk about the connections between fine art and commercial printing green living green living in and outside of the studio and art investments you won't want to miss it this episode like all episodes was written and produced by me miranda metcalf with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.